Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm really pleased to have Michael Leifman and Marco Annunziata, who are the co-hosts of M4Edge, a podcast that analyzes how technologies impact the economy. Marco and Michael have had past lives at General Electric and have thought about the gap between economics and technology. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation about how technology is changing our world of work. So I really appreciate both of you being on this podcast. Let me ask you both first. How did you guys decide to uh, set up your podcast M4Edge? Huh. Well, first of all, thanks for having us, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be here. So M4Edge is sort of shorthand for an intentionally clunky and cheeky formal title, which is Macro, Micro, Michael, Marco, and Startups oh, at the Edge. And we figured it was too much of a mouthful to say that <laughs> That's each pretty time. good. <laughs> I like that. But how did you all come upon technology in the world of work as an area to focus on. Marco, why don't you start and I'll fill in anything you leave out. Dan, thanks on my side as well for having us on the podcast. Michael and I were together at General Electric where we were running the business innovation strategy department. We were doing analysis on the global economic and geopolitical landscape, but also on how new technologies were changing the competitive landscape for G, for the customers, for the company itself. So that's where we became interested, especially in technologies related to the fourth industrial revolution, what we dubbed as the industrial internet at G. But both of us were also very much interested in everything from artificial intelligence to robotics to 3D printing and interested both from the point of view of the technical aspects, the implications for companies, but also the broader implications for the workforce, the future of work ideas of impact on wages and jobs. And so we wanted to continue this exploration, this journey, even after leaving General Electric. And that's why we decided to launch this podcast together. Michael, why don't you take it from here? Yeah, thanks. And I'll just add, I mean, Marco and I, although we really enjoy talking to each other and we're fascinated by a lot of the same things, we have slightly different views. I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic about how some of the things will play out. Marco tends to be a little bit more optimistic. And so our conversations sometimes take a somewhat dichotomous kind of turn. On the one hand, on the other. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. exactly. That's great. So we've done some work here at CSIS on the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the world of work. We did a whole year-long look at this, and we looked at Kazakhstan, Nigeria, Brazil, and India. We put a task force together to look at this issue because we were interested in our robots and AI and drones and 3D printing. Are they going to blow up the pathways out of poverty that have probably helped pull hundreds of millions, if not more, people out of poverty over the last 40 or 50 years. And so when we looked at it, my deep thought after spending a year in this is probably not not, I guess is one way to think about it. And one of the things that surprised me was, maybe you all have a reaction, that I think that the AI and these different technologies are going to play out in very context-specific ways in different countries in different ways. It also depends a little bit on the regulatory regime and some of the rules, the rules of the game. If you don't have electricity, that's a thing. We talk a lot about driverless cars. If you've got 
rickshaws on the street in certain countries or you don't have a fully functioning infrastructure. Having a driverless car implies absolutely pristine and perfect infrastructure. That's right. You can't have a snowstorm. You can't have a pot. You know, you can have a kind of one or two occasional potholes. But, you know, having kind of super broken infrastructure, I, I think, makes it quite difficult to have a full on driverless car. What do you guys think about that? So I think that's basically correct. Marco and I, in addition to hosting this podcast, we each have uh, consulting practices. And one of the pieces of work I did last year was for the World Bank on a pretty similar topic. So we were looking at the role of these breakthrough technologies in development. And we looked at energy and transport and water across infrastructure. And for sure, one of the key insights from that exercise was the technologies will come. It's a question of how they deploy and how they diffuse through the economy and the role of the government as an enabler or, disenabler. The, or a disenabler, right? And the role of existing service providers, incumbents in either blocking advent of these technologies or welcoming them and embracing them in Look some way. Look at Uber. I've probably used Uber in 30 cities in the world. I bet both of you used it in 20 or 30 cities too. My wife's from Argentina in Buenos Aires. It's quasi illegal it's kind of like you do it the way you'd kind of like buy illegal watches from some guy in a trench coat, you know what I mean, or something. It's sort of really – it's very gray market at best. And so the government is a disenabler of sort of this breakthrough thing that in a lot of cities we take it for granted. That's right. I'll say one more thing and then let Marco jump in, which is that I think you know this is something that we've seen in different episodes of the podcast, that the way – AI and a lot of these other technologies will deploy. You're right, it's very context specific, but particularly with respect to developing countries, the relationship of capital to labor and the value of labor is, is going to change. And yeah. so where labor is cheap in developing countries, yeah, I want to come back it, to that. It, it just has a different, you know, these technologies will have a different impact and they'll deploy and develop in different ways. Marco, what do you think about this? Yeah, let me just add a quick comment on this, which is there's no doubt that new technologies by themselves are not going to be enough. So the infrastructure is important, the government policy and regulations are important. But I do think that some of these innovations can help accelerate economic growth in developing countries, sometimes in ways that are difficult for us to anticipate. Because when we think about these new waves of innovation, we think of artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, we think of some of the innovations that are most striking for us in advanced economies. But the fact is, with access to the internet, access to more manageable and more user-friendly tools, you will see new innovations being developed in emerging markets themselves, which are more tailored to their needs. And one example that always comes to mind for me is how mobile financing actually started at a faster place in a, way, in a place like Nigeria, and now is being used in India to accelerate banking, a larger section of the population. So I think what you were saying is completely right, government enabling or non-enabling is a big factor, but we should be careful not to underestimate the potential that these innovations have to go around some of the institutional infrastructural constraints that developing countries face. Great. So let me go back to the, an issue that Michael raised, which is this issue of the cost of labor in developing countries. One of the things when we first started the exercise two years ago was the premise that were robots going to blow up, you know, replace super low-wage workers in some of these developing countries, say in textiles, and that's kind of to be determined. But one of the things that shocked me was, well, the cost of labor in some countries is so cheap 
that paying for the robots or the technology actually was not a money-saving thing. And so that uh, that was kind of a revelation to me. Does that ring true for both of you? I would say yes and no. And so yes, for sure, labor is cheaper in, in many other parts of the world than it is in the States or developing countries. And so, right, the trade-off between paying for labor and paying for some sort of automation isn't the same as what it is in the States or in other OECD countries. On the other hand, as OECD countries begin to develop some of these technologies, or I should say use many of these technologies across a wide range of industries, production here becomes more competitive and cheaper. And so there's a dynamic that'll play out, I think, over time, the way trade flows will change, I think, will depend in part on not just the capital to labor relationship within countries, but you know, within countries and across these different technologies. Mar- Marco, do you agree with that? I do. And also another element which plays here then is the fact that as some of these developing countries become stronger economically, they become richer, wages rise. And so we've seen already a migration of cheap labor production away from China and to other places like Bangladesh and Vietnam, for example. And those will also eventually face pressures for higher increases in wages. And I think this will increasingly shift the name of the game towards the skills. Having skills and talent will become increasingly the most scarce resource that companies face. And that shifts the game to the idea of how do you train workers to use new technologies? How do you upskill them and reskill them, which is something that we can get into if you're interested. One of the mini-series we did on M4 Edge was on additive manufacturing or 3D printing. We did three or four episodes And one of the insights there is not just that, okay, there's a new way of producing goods, but there are new supply chains that are being developed because of the ability of existing supply chains to use the flexibility they didn't know they had. So in other words, if you've got an open line in Kansas, you might be able to use it a few weeks of the year where otherwise it would lay dormant because of these new, not just additive manufacturing technologies, but a whole new set of advanced manufacturing technologies. And that too, I think, is going to change the way trade flows exhibit over over time. It'll change the location and geography. So it's not just that the relative cost of labor is changing, but the relative supply of manufacturing facilities is changing. There's something big here, you know, because arguably this is already happening and it might explain how supply chains are being reshaped and localized. It might help explain why you know, we are all concerned about the deceleration in global trade and signs of a deceleration in global growth. But global growth has decelerated only marginally, even though global trade, as we measure it today, has really plummeted. So there's something interesting going on there already. And I do think it's driven by technology, as Michael was mentioning. So let me just press a little bit further on this issue of for example, on, with the Jetsons, they had those flying cars in the cartoon, <laughs> The Jetsons. I would argue that we have the technology today to have flying cars. We don't have flying cars today. Why don't we have flying cars today? My view is, is it's a function of the regulatory regime and the litigation and security concerns. That is sort of my take And that I think that the brave new world of some of these technologies are going to take a much longer period of time to be kind of rolled out all over the world, not only all over, but even in the United States. What do you guys think of that? 
It's funny, we haven't done an episode yet on flying cars, but we we definitely will because it's sort of fascinating. And to me, you're right, when I think of flying cars that you immediately go to the Jetsons and sci-fi, it's sort of the the poster child for the sci-fi tech, right? If you go back about a year ago, many people expected autonomous vehicles, AVs, driverless cars, to, you know, be here in 2020. And that was sort of the story that was being told in the popular media. And it was the story that was in some sense being sold a little bit by the makers of these different technologies. By the the widget makers. On the other hand, I think if you look a little bit more closely, you begin to parse their statements. And it's not that those AVs will be you know, widely deployed in 2020, but they will be commercially available soon. And so when we think about whether it's or, AVs or, AV or fly- like things, yeah. AV like functions, if I want to, par- right. you to parallel park my car, That's or here, I've got right. this thing in my car that if I'm kind of falling asleep, it tells me if I'm going across the divide when I'm not supposed to be. That's right. So those things, those driver assist, ADAS, they, they call them, those are here. The next level of driverless cars, you know, whether it's level three They've or four levels, or whatever it right. is. Yeah, you know, they, they go up to, I think it's level four, which is, you know, fully autonomous in any situation. You know, that that's coming. It just will be here, let's say, in seven, eight, nine, ten years rather than in two, three years. But I think that that's probably what most of the technologists, if they were fully honest with themselves, would have said a year ago, just that the marketing sort of got ahead of the technology. I suspect that's kind of what's happening with the drone cars or whatever you want to call them, the flying cars. I think... They're coming. I think you're right. There's probably a little bit more regulatory hurdle than there is for regular cars, but whatever you want to call the AVs, earthbound cars. But I I think they'll come. Marco? And I think something that comes up here then is the devil sometimes is in the details, and the details are in the execution and scaling of this innovation. In the podcast, uh, we actually run a mini-series on mobility, and uh, what Michael was saying now brought to mind a comment by one of our guests, who was Mike Granny, of Venture Capitalist of Managed Mobility. He specialized in mobility, and he said on self-driving cars, look, we all got very excited because we were getting to 90% of the progress so fast, and we didn't realize that the last 10% was going to be a lot harder than we thought. And this is relevant because if you think of the big benefits we are expecting from autonomous vehicles in terms of a reduction in accidents, in terms of freeing up time for people to do other things while they travel, in terms of speeding up traffic, they all depend on autonomous vehicles being deployed at scale. So I think there's something interesting here, which is as we assess these technologies, it's important to understand what does it take for them to scale. And it's policies and regulations, as you were mentioning. It's also fine-tuning some of the technical details. But scaling is crucial to achieve the economic benefits that we're all looking for. So let me ask about the China versus U.S. thing. Would you guys rather be us or would you rather be China when it comes to sort of these fourth industrial revolution technologies? Are they ahead of us? Are we ahead of them? Should we all be losing sleep that they're going to take over the world? Do they have the technological edge? So my understanding is that in some sense they are at parity with the U.S. in terms of if you measure it by the number of you know scholarly articles that are published on AI, they're about at parity. If you measure it by the number of top-tier scholarly articles 
uh, on AI, they're almost there. On the other hand, the Chinese have a few advantages that I think the like states will never like have. Like having a police state and be able to kind of capture all that data and Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. So, right, on the one hand, facial recognition, no one blanches we're not, we're at not it. Probably up, we're here, not probably up you know, for that. Yeah, right. So there, there's all sorts of... In a free um, society, there's ha- a whole bunch hand of here yeah, about yeah. facial recognition. Moreover, because it's a centrally planned economy, they're able, when they have a national strategy, they're able to implement all yeah, yeah. parts of it. You know, sometimes it's a bumpy road. The different provincial governments aren't yeah. always doing exactly what Beijing wants to happen, but they're able to implement these major national plans. We recently came out with one, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, that is fine, but as you know, is lacking relative to what the, the Chinese put out in, I think it was 2017 or something. So yeah, I think that's a race that they are positioned to win. And I know that Chinese, on the one hand, put out statements about not militarizing AI, but on the yeah, other hand, they're also it. very much militarizing AI. So yeah, that worries me a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, Marco? I want to push back a bit, a bit against this for the following reason. I know what Michael said, and what you also were saying, then is true in the sense that China, because of their political setup, is able to ram through some experiments at scale, like on facial recognition, that in the U.S. we cannot do. However, I would say that it's not at all clear that that kind of experiment can lead you to unambiguous advantages in artificial intelligence across the board. There is actually an argument being made that operating with some tighter constraints on how much data of a certain kind you can collect pushes AI experts to be smarter and to develop smarter algorithms. And there are some people in AI who will point out, for example, that the most efficient learning intelligence system is a child. And children learn very quickly from relatively limited amounts of data. So on that front, I'm a bit more optimistic. What worries me about China in the competition with the U.S. is that they are throwing an enormous amount of resources at building human capital, expertise in engineering, AI, computer science, they are investing in human capital on the front a lot more than the U.S. is. To balance that, though, I would say, again, all these technologies need to be deployed through an economic system that needs to be sufficiently flexible. And if China wants to do that, they will have to go further in terms of reforming their economic system towards a capitalist direction, which will create a number of complications that I'm not sure they are ready to face yet. So I think it's an open competition. Both countries have different comparative advantage. I think it's a good idea to lose sleep over it, as you were saying, because it's a very, very high stakes game. I was just going to butt in with a short aside, which is that Marco and I often share things we see or read or learn about different technologies. And there was some news recently, if you're following any of this kind of stuff, you've probably seen it. But the OpenAI group recently showed a video of a single robotic hand with multiple, you know, joints and each of the each of the digits and, you know, embedded cameras solving a Rubik's Cube puzzle. So, you know, the coordination between the individual fingers and joints and the cameras and, you know, recognizing the different colors and it solved it in a few minutes. It was this unbelievable feat and it took, you know, a few minutes for the thing to solve. And so I sent the video to Marco who immediately sent me back a video of a, I don't know, four-year-old kid solving it in seven seconds. I love it. (laughs) I love it. So I'd still rather be us than them, but I don't know if it's a Sputnik moment, the AI it kind of rhymes with the Sputnik moment, doesn't it? 
I think that's right. And I mean, the question is whether the U.S. can marshal the resources it did in the space race. You know, not accidentally, the Chinese program on autonomous cars is called the Moonshot Program. Yeah, I do think fear is a good motivator for the United States. I think we oftentimes are complacent unless we're afraid. And I think we're going to have to be we're going to have to scare the hell out of the American people to quote. I think it was Senator Vandenberg. I think he may have said we have to scare the hell of the American people this to sell this. I think part of the problem, though, then, is that a lot of us are already scared, but scared of artificial intelligence itself almost as much as the idea of losing the competition with China. Are you afraid of, like, Terminator-like dystopian futures with, I mean, I see these videos of combining AI and killer drones, and you just say, okay, now go, anybody that's, that, that looks like Dan, you know, go, you know, put a little explosive behind their head and blow them up. And I've seen these videos, these swarm drone things. You guys have probably seen this. Right. Terrifying. I saw it maybe about a year ago. Are you guys losing sleep over sort of these hyper-weaponized combinations of drones and AI and whatever that are going to, you know, killer robots, killer technologies that aren't ultimately controlled by humans and just sort of, you know, go out of control? So on on this front, I am. I'm very worried that these applications of artificial intelligence and robotics to the military field are highly dangerous because they speed up the game to an enormous extent, way beyond what is efficient for human reactions. And the technology is only partially understood and controllable. So that element of artificial intelligence on the battlefield does scare me. I was waiting for you to be the optimistic one. Okay, so I'm also a little bit not on this you know, <laughs> So I'm I'm also a little bit scared of this. So you know, you speak to AI researchers and they will sort of poo-poo this stuff and saying, "Oh, we're so far away." You know, the idea of human-level machine intelligence or artificial general intelligence, this is called AGI, the singularity. Yeah, yeah. So they they say, "Oh, this is you know many 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 years away." And you know, one of the sort of brush-off statements is that's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. You know, we're far away from having to think about that problem. But then when you look at the years that are expected before we reach human level machine intelligence or artificial general intelligence. The range is like up to 80 or, you know, as soon as 20 years. So if it's as soon as 20 years, my perspective, that's tomorrow, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of terrifying. But even 80 years, that's not a whole lot of time. You know, it's, it's, it's a lifetime, basically. So that's close. Am I worried about it happening tomorrow? I, I don't think so. But I think it's certainly a, a reality. And if you think about the t- types of technologies that are being developed. I mean, you can look on, you know, a very simple YouTube search and you'll find robots doing incredible things. Most of them are, those are practiced and rehearsed moves. They're not um, intelligent robots, but they have the dexterity to do incredible things. If you think about robot coordination, you know, multiple robots all working in tandem and in unison to achieve a goal, that's happening already. Lots of the ingredients that are needed for some of those nightmare scenarios are being worked on. They're not necessarily being worked on for you know, evil aims. There's not some, you know, guy stroking a cat with his glove on somewhere. but with a pinky in his mouth. Yeah, exactly. Like Dr. Evil. Exactly. But, you know, I think there's a real possibility of a a rogue researcher somewhere. Okay, so why don't you guys both walk me through the best case scenario for the 4IR? Like, what's the great, big, beautiful tomorrow of the fourth industrial revolution? And what's that mean for America? And what's it mean for the world? Well, if you want a more positive twist, let me start. <laughs> I think that the 
best scenario is one where you have the following. First of all, you have an improvement in productivity, an improvement in the range of things we can produce and how cheaply, sustainably, and quickly we can produce them. And some of the progress we keep seeing on 3D printing goes in that direction with more and more flexibility on the machines. Some of the progress we see in product design with artificial intelligence applied to design, opening new frontiers, goes in that direction. So there are a lot of innovations of the fourth industrial revolution that push towards better products made faster, cheaper, and more sustainable way. This, in my mind, though, should be combined with using some of the innovations we have to improve human skills together with the technology. And again, some of the companies we've interviewed go exactly in that direction, triggering using artificial intelligence to help training, to help learning. That is essential to help human capital move together, hand in hand with the technology. Now, that to me will lead to a world where you have faster economic growth with a smaller resource footprint, a world where you can accelerate growth in emerging markets to lift more and more people out of poverty, a world where you create more opportunities so you start alleviating concerns about economic inequality in what I think is the most productive way, which is by creating greater opportunity for everybody, and in a way that also will start alleviating some of these zero-sum game protection tensions that we see across the world. That, for me, is the positive scenario for the fourth industrial revolution. I do think that we're taking very significant steps in that direction. But again, I'm the optimist here. So I'll, I'll start out with a pessimistic view, and then I'll try to end on an on a up note. And so I think there are a few things that make this transition different. I know, you know, people say it's it's always, you know, there's always this, oh, it's different this time, and that's, that's uh, sort of, you know, derided. But I think this time is different for three reasons, uh, scale, speed, and starting point. So scale, meaning that AI and these techno- technological revolutions are happening in all industries. It's not just in, you know, one or two, it's sort of everywhere. So the moment that carpenters and, uh, and cement manufacturers or, or builders or construction workers or sort of, you know, the, the trades are be- beginning to be replaced, so too will the lower skill lawyers and accountants. And, you know, it's, it's sort of an everywhere, everything kind of revolution. The scale is everywhere. The speed is also, you know, we keep on being surprised by how quickly we surpass our expectations on where these technologies are. So I think the speed will catch people by surprise. And I think starting point, um, we're at a more inequitable place in terms of, um, you know, particularly the OECD economies where the percent of wealth concentration is worse than it's been. I know Marco has a slightly different take on this, but uh, it's inequitable. And so the people at the lower rungs of the ladder are going to have an even harder time catching up. So I think this time actually is different. On the other hand, I think there actually are wonderful things that can happen. Our very first guest was uh, Greg Mulholland, who's the CEO of a company called Citrine. They do materials development using AI, so speeding up the pace of how we invent new things. And that has enormous um, potential ramifications for things like energy, for example. You know, can we build better batteries? Can we use carbon in ways that we haven't used it before? So that's just one example of, I think, you know, this whole field of AI for good that I have some uh, some optimism about. Good. Okay. Well, guys, it's been really great chatting with both of you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Marco, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard, 
China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 